Our scripture reading this morning comes from Hebrews, the 10th chapter, verses 19 through 25. Now, um, we have been working through the book of Hebrews together um, for, uh, for a couple months now. And uh, we began um, uh, talking about provenient grace. Um, the way uh, the way God prepares us and pulls us along, um, and and it helps us enter into a relationship with Him. Then these past two weeks, we talked about God's justifying grace, how we come into relationship with God. And this uh, this morning, we are rounding the corner, and we are beginning to talk about sanctifying grace. Um, that grace by which um, the Holy Spirit begins to perfect us, begins to make us more and more like Christ each day. And so uh, let's begin that conversation together with Hebrews, the 10th chapter, verses 19 through 25. Hear now the word of our Lord. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is, his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. This is the word of God. May it find its way into our hearts and lives this morning by the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen. Once there was a little town of ducks. Every Sunday the ducks waddle out of the houses and waddle down Main Street to their church. They waddle into the sanctuary and squat in their proper pews. The duck choir waddles in and takes its place. They sing, Oh, for a thousand bills to quack. Then the duck minister comes forward and opens the duck Bible. And he begins to preach. He says, Wank, 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 wank. Which, translating into the vernacular, is, Ducks, God has given you wings. With wings you can fly. With wings you can, can mount up and soar like eagles. No walls can confine you. No fences can hold you. You have wings. God has given you wings and you can fly like birds. Go forth and fly. And all the ducks in response quack, Amen. Then they get up from their pews and they all waddle home. Now, unfortunately, I can't take credit for the Duck Church story. It comes from the writings of Soren Kierkegaard. But I've always appreciated this little parable because it reminds us 
the church is supposed to be a place of transformation. It's supposed to be a place where people learn to spread their wings and fly. But all too often we waggle out of here the same way we waggle again. This story forces us to face this existential question. Is church all it's quacked up to be? I wonder, is a single thing that happens here going to make a difference out there? Will any of our Sunday make it to Monday? Now, I'm not denying that we have a good time here. We sing songs from our childhood, songs that uplift us, maybe give us goosebumps. But does any of that joy, peace, and love we feel stick? Does it matter when someone at work says something mean or gets in our way? Or is our spirit easily soured? Our joy quickly robbed? Does our worship make a difference? Or is it all waddle and no flight? We learn a great life lesson in Sunday school. We watch DVDs from some of the greatest teachers in the country. We dig into scripture together and learn about the great heroes of the faith. But does any of it make the eight-inch journey from our head to our hearts? Does any of it cause us to have any more patience with our family members? Does any of it cause us to have any more integrity in our workplaces? Does any of it cause us to be any more generous towards those down on their luck? Or is it all just empty quacking? See, i got to know because I spend easily 20 hours a week on a sermon. Is it making a difference? When I stand up and tell you that Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always, to the end of the age. Do you leave here ready to do just that? To go make disciples for the transformation of the world? Forget the world. Will you cross town to reach someone? Or will we all woggle out of here the same way we woggled in? Does anything we do here matter? Is the church all it's quacked up to be? Or are we all waggle and no flight? Now, when I was a 16-year-old, I was your typical average teenage guy. Like all 16-year-olds, I went through a pretty heavy St. Francis phase. See, I devoured every book I could get my hands on about the life of St. Francis Assisi. I think that's when my dad started to worry I might be called into ministry. But I loved all those wonderful stories about this 13th century saint. Though some of them were a little outlandish. (laughs) There's one in particular that always made me giggle. See, the story goes that one day St. Francis was at a pond. And there at the pond were all of these ducks floating on the water. So St. Francis decided to preach the gospel to the ducks. He did, and all the ducks came to the edge of the pond where he was standing, and they listened intently. Then when he was done preaching, the ducks were baptized, and then they flew off together in the formation of a cross.
Now, as a 16-year-old, I thought that story was ridiculous. Like, who would believe that? How can a bunch of ducks make a heartfelt response to the gospel? But now that I'm a preacher myself, I understand the story on a deeper level. First, I get St. Francis' impulse, right? When you've got the preaching bug, you'll preach to any group that will hold still long enough. Ducks or no ducks. But more than that, the image of ducks leaving a worship service, flying off in the formation of a cross, that stuck with me. See, that's what I believe the aim of our worship together should be. It's my fervent desire that we would leave here in the formation of a cross. It's my hope and prayer that because of what happens this morning, our lives and our communities would be transformed. We would leave ready to take the cross of Jesus to new heights. I don't want us to waddle out of here the same way we waddled in. I want us to fly. I'm afraid sometimes we drift from our mission. See, we are called to be a flight school, a place where people can learn the cross formation so that they can take off into the world and show it to others. But I'm afraid we've let ourselves sometimes become a building to waddle in and out of to hear inspiring stories about others flying, but never really do it ourselves. In our passage this morning, the author of Hebrews is addressing a church that is experiencing a similar sort of mission drift. It's hard to know exactly what's going on. You kind of have to read between the lines a little, but we know this much. The church is experiencing decline. People aren't attending the weekly gatherings the way they used to. They've fallen out of the habit. Now, scholars have made guesses about the causes of this. Some think it might have to do with religious persecution. Maybe people are afraid to go to their gatherings because they fear they'll become a target to their neighbors. Or there could be a group that feel they've outgrown the need to meet. You know, they know everything there is to know about Jesus and they can pray and worship on their own at home. The author of Hebrews doesn't really get into the reasons they are not meeting. Rather, he gives the reasons they should meet. He reminds them what they're supposed to be all about. He says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. See, last week we talked about how the author of Hebrews would have been puzzled by the statement, I was saved back when. The author of Hebrews would have said, we are being saved. We talked about the being saved part last week, what it means to understand that the drama of salvation is something that is ongoing, unfolding all around us. But this morning, I want us to consider that we are being saved, that the necessary transformation that happens in our lives only happens in community. It only happens when we gather together. 
See, I believe this year has taught us two very important things about church. One, that we can have church without a building, but also that we can't have church without each other. Community is the soil in which spiritual growth happens. Hebrews says that we meet so that we can help each other become who we are called to be. Hebrews uses the phrase, spur one another on toward love and good deeds. John Wesley would say, urge each other on to perfection. I'd like to suggest that church is a place where we help each other love and live like Jesus. Loving like Jesus involves an inward transformation. See, sin has disconnected us from God, our neighbor, and our truest selves. But here in church, we're called to help each other reconnect. Church is a place where we can discover the God who loves us so much he gave us one and only son. And we can learn to love God in worship. We can also learn to love our neighbors by practicing peaceful fellowship and praying with and for each other. We also learn to love ourselves rightly by discovering our gifts and purposes with the help of wise mentors. Jesus loved in community with his 12 disciples. And so for us to love like him, we have to love in community too. But outside these doors, we are called to live like Jesus. We are called to, to act out the love we learn here in the world. Church is the flight school where we learn the formation. In the world we live as Jesus lived. We are called to proclaim the good news and to bring forgiveness and healing wherever we go. We're called to invite others into relationship. A relationship with Jesus, yes, but also a relationship with his church. The process of being brought into relationship together, the process of, of helping each other to live and love like Jesus is called sanctifying grace. We call it grace because it is given to us without cost. It is a free gift of the Holy Spirit. It is only through God's Spirit that we can say we are being saved. It is the Holy Spirit that helps us learn love here and show love out there. It was our source and power. Sanctification happens in community, but it only happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. And therein lies the rub. The Holy Spirit is a notoriously difficult dance partner. Jesus said the Spirit was like the wind. You can't see it coming. You don't know where it's going next. It just happens all of a sudden, out of nowhere. The Holy Spirit falls and things occur. We know it happens. We believe in it. But if we're honest, we can't exactly count on it all the time, can we? I wonder how many of you grew up in a tradition where the Holy Spirit was referred to as the Holy Ghost. It's weird, huh? <laughs> Whenever I hear Holy Ghost, this is what I picture. I can't help it. Well, ghost actually comes from the Old English ghast, 
which means breath. Only later did ghosts become synonymous with the spirits of the dead. But Holy Ghost isn't the weirdest phrase I've heard used for the Holy Spirit. See, the ancient Celtics in Ireland had their own unique brand of Christianity. They often referred to the Holy Spirit as on God glass, or the wild goose. <laughs> what? Crazy, right? You heard that right, as in the father, the son, and the wild goose. <laughs> a pastor named Mark Batterson wrote all about it in a book called Wild Goose Chase. See, the Celtics realized that the spirit was elusive, hard to pin down, less like a dove that could easily be caged and tamed, and more like a wild goose. It goes where it wants and does what it wants. You can't do anything to make a wild goose come to you. You just have to be in the right place when it shows up. I think wild goose is as good a metaphor as fire, wind, and dove. Maybe even a little better than ghost. It's a good metaphor to describe the untamed presence of a God who calls his people to soar with him. But if the Holy Spirit is unpredictable, how can we rely on its power? How can we trust it to show up? Maybe, like with that wild goose, you want to hang out. You want to hang out in the pond that it seems to frequent the most. See, we can place ourselves in the way of the Holy Spirit by gathering to one place the Spirit promises to be wherever two or more are gathered in the name of Jesus. This morning is Pentecost Sunday. It's a special day in the life of the church in which we commemorate the birth of the church. We often say the church was born when the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost in the second chapter of Acts. It was a miraculous event. There was an Impressive uh, firework display. Uh, preaching was heard in every language. Souls were saved. Most say that this was when the church was born. But I wonder if it wasn't born a little before that. You know, not Acts chapter 2, but Acts chapter 1. Remember, before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gives the disciples clear instructions. He tells him, don't leave Jerusalem, stay here together and wait on the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what they do. They stay in that little upper room that they had stayed in with Jesus the week of Passover, and they waited. But waiting didn't mean that they did nothing. Verse 14 tells us that they joined constantly together in prayer. They even had their first committee meeting. They had to pick an apostle to replace Judas that required a vote. We're told there was about 120 of them gathering on a regular basis. You know what that sounds like to me? Church. See, I think the church was born the second they began to gather and pray together. The second they began to share the burden of leadership and get organized for the future. We're not told what they talked about when they gathered, but I'll bet you all the money in my pocket that when they gathered together, 
they told the stories of Jesus. Only they didn't begin like we do, turning in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. No, they said, hey, remember that time when Jesus told us to feed the entire crowd of people with a sack lunch? Yeah, I thought he was joking at first. And then I'll bet you anything, they sang psalms that brought them comfort and joy. In other words, they had church. And you know that they had to eat afterwards, right? You think one of the Marys made food for everybody? Or do you think they were instructed to each bring a dish? I'm guessing they had a potluck. See, they got in the habit of gathering week after week after week. It wasn't always exciting. It wasn't always transformative. But boy, one day, one day it was. Chapter 2 opens by telling us that when the day of Pentecost came, they were all gathered together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. What had begun with the small gathering of people loving like Jesus was ready to become a worldwide movement of people living like Jesus. The disciples were ready to go fly in the formation of a cross. People began to gather around this building and they said, what in the world is going on in there? We hear preaching from every language. How is that possible? Then Peter stood up and delivered the first evangelistic sermon. And it was a stem winder. We're told that the people heard his words and they were cut to the heart. So they asked him, what should we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you. And that day, 3,000 people accepted the call. What a day! So what did they do next? How could they possibly top all of that? What was their follow-up act? Now that the Spirit is finally here, what do we do? Verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. What did they do? They kept on gathering. They continued to meet together. They kept on loving and living like Jesus and teaching others to do the same. And they did it together. They became a community of sanctifying grace, a church. 
they came together and they learned the formation of the cross so that they could go out into the world and bear it. That is exactly what we are called to do 2,000 years later. To gather here, to learn to live and love like Jesus so that we can bear the image of his sacrificial love in the world. Sometimes we waggle in here weary and beat down, ready to throw in the towel. But we see the smiling faces and feel the love of Jesus being practiced and something happens. We sing the songs and, and the joy is relit inside of us. We hear the stories of Jesus and we're inspired. The Spirit shows up. And it shows up in a place where it always promised to be. Wherever two or more are gathered in the name of Jesus. And we leave here flying a little higher and looking a little more like a cross. Brothers and sisters, that is all in the world this preacher wants. So, ducks, God has given you with wings, with wings you can fly, with wings you can mount up and soar like eagles. No walls can confine you, no fences can hold you. God has given you wings. You can fly like birds. Go forth and fly. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the wild goose. Amen.